Hello, and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast, riding the rodeo of religion and life. It is great to come to you here today. This is Steve Poos Benson. I'm the host of the podcast, and guess what? We are recording in our brand new recording studio at Columbine United Church down in the basement. If you have not seen our new recording studio, you've got to come see it. It's right down the stairs to the left. We have our green screen hooked up for our, all of our video recording. And Tag Worley just set up our microphone stations for our recording booth. So this is really cool and high tech, which is very exciting. Today, I'm going to continue the conversation about our deconstruction and reconstruction and faith development. And uh, we had Sarah Rex last week, and now I'm going to drop down and in kind of age and have our own Samantha Bronson, who's the Minister of Children and Youth here at Columbine. Although she does much more than just children and youth, she assists in worship. She uh, is a pastor in the making in her own right, preparing to be ordained. So she's got a great depth of theological training and background, so so much more than just a minister of children and youth. But I'm really excited to have you, Samantha. Thank you, Steve. Very cool, very cool. You know, uh, one of the things I want or I'm excited about is that you and Sarah have gone through similar things in your life, although... Sarah is easily, what is she, 25 years older than you? 20 yeah, years about older? that, about yeah. 25. We counted the other day, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, even though you're basically a generation apart, you have still going through some of the things, same things as far as leaving the evangelical church. All right, so let's dive in. Uh, Sam and I have got some questions that I want to cover, but I'm also hoping just kind of rock and roll in a little bit. Yeah. All right, Sam, here's my big question. What does it mean, what did it mean for you to grow up evangelical? What does that look like? Yeah, I think evangelicalism is a couple things. It is both a theological perspective. It's also a culture. So theologically speaking, they're going to be more in line with your traditional church doctrines. What does that mean, traditional church doctrine? Um, they're going to believe in the Apostles' Creed. They might not know what the Apostles' Creed is, but they're going to believe all of those to the letter. They're going to believe in, a, if not a literal view of the Bible, they're going to view it close to that. Uh-huh. Culturally, evangelicalism is all of this cultural expectation, your traditional gender roles, for the most part, there are some exceptions. Which means husbands, head of the family, yeah, uh, wives are submissive to husbands. Right, right. Um, and no female leadership in the church or very limited female leadership in the church. It's also just kind of this expectation around church that even though I was born in the 90s, really experienced most of my childhood in the 2000s, the culture of that makes it seem like it was more back in the day where everybody was at church, where things were closed on Sundays, that culture of evangelicalism. So uh, is there also some of like the social issues that go along with evangelicalism as far as like anti-gay, anti-abortion, anti-anti-anti? I mean, you're shaking your head. Yeah, yeah say something about that. Yeah, so um, 
the tr- I mean, just like our church has some political views that go along with our beliefs, the same goes for evangelicalism, and those are going to be typically more right-leaning. Again, you're going to find evangelicals who don't ascribe to that, but f- as a whole, they're going to be more conservative, right-leaning in what they believe. So are most evangelicals like anti-abortion? I would say probably yes. Are they uh, most evangelicals anti-gay? Mostly yes. Are they anti-divorce? Ooh, that's a good one. They Um, would say yes, but in practice, I think it lines up with the rest of the country. Yeah, because, I mean, if you're going to be anti-anti based upon things that Jesus said, I mean, Jesus was anti-divorce. He allowed it, but the Bible in in general is anti-divorce, but I know a whole ton of evangelicals who are divorced. Yeah, yeah. I think Christians are on par, if not higher divorce rates than... Okay, so you grew up in this. You grew up in this. Yeah. What did it look like for you as a kid growing up in this? I know Sarah talked about this of like any time the church doors were open, I was there. If there was a handbell group that was (laughs) looking for kids, I was there and I was going to ring the biggest handbell there was. If there was a theater production I was going to be there at the church doing that. Whatever there was to do, I was going to be there and do that. And you're expected to give your all in it. You're expected to do your best in everything that you did, especially in the church things. So you went to Sunday school uh, every single Sunday. You were in youth group. I mean, it was pretty um, amazing to me how you kind of— I don't know if the word is conformed, because you weren't conforming. It was just kind of who you were. It was the, f- the pool that you swam Yeah, in. it was just the part of the world. In. Yeah, that, but you learned all the books of the Bible to the place where today you can look up a Bible, bas- Bible passage within 10 seconds, something like that. Just about. I have to practice to get there, <laughs> but yeah. So you grew up in this. Um, did, was it, did it determine where you, where you went to college? Yeah, so we've had Baptists in my, that's how, what I grew up as Baptists, both Texas Baptist and Southern What's Baptist. What's the difference between Texas and Southern? Texas Baptists are a little more progressive in the sense that they don't openly deny women in leadership. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I went to Baylor for college, and that is a Texas Baptist school. So my seminary at it was Texas Baptist. So they affirmed women, but... Um, in Baptist world, you can ascribe to and your church chooses to participate in a denomination, um, which is different than churches, other churches, mainline churches. So, okay. So I didn't know that. So I thought Baptists were, I thought there was Southern Baptist and that's it, but there's a Texas Baptist. There's Texas Baptist. You have American Baptists usually in the North. They're a lot more progressive. progressive. Yeah. So I would think Texas Baptists would be like uber conservative just because it's Texas. No. But they're considered they, heretical by the Southern Baptists. Yes. Standards. In the 90s, when Paige Patterson, um, the big Southern Baptist leader guy who is horrible in a lot of ways, came to power um, within the Southern Baptist Convention, the a group of Texas Baptists, which is how they got their name, saw kind of the direction that this 
group was going and chose to separate themselves. So churches can choose to affiliate with one, the other, both, neither. And they do that by paying money to the denomination and missionaries, things like that. So Texas Baptist is its own denomination? Yeah, and it's fairly young, about 30 years old. Huh? Okay, cool. So you went to a Texas Baptist University. I did. Which affirmed women. Yes, yes. Did, did it affirm literal interpretation of the Bible? Was it open to interpretation? So many of the churches around Waco, which is where Baylor is, were quite a bit more conservative. The religion department at Baylor was kind of known for being edgy and teaching historical criticism and literary criticism. Right. And all the freshmen were required to take Christian history and a Bible class. And they taught it from this more progressive view, which we look at now and we're like, oh, that's just like seminary education, being provided all of the tools to be able to look critically at our faith. Was this your freshman year in college? Yes. So when did the cracks in the foundation start that you began to see, uh uh-oh, what you grew up with was not true or not, wasn't going to hold water for you anymore? Yeah, I think I've always been a questioner. I've always asked a lot of questions. I remember in like the seventh grade in Sunday school saying, you know, wait a minute, you're telling me that the whole world has gone wayside because two people decided to eat a piece of fruit? You're not, you're telling me we could have all been naked and happy? I was. <laughs> You know, I was righteously anger, angered by this notion that it all came down to these two people. When did you start seeing that? I saw it in the Bible. I saw it in the stories. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah. All right. Through, I mean, we were taught the stories of the Bible. And so I used that and started asking questions about them, wanting to know more because I loved it. I was excited to learn about it. And sometimes my questions were answered. Sometimes the Sunday school teacher who may or may not have any kind of theological education was like, oh, I don't know. And I'm sure they were always like kind of nervous when I rose my hand in Sunday school. Some of them loved it. It was kind of hit or miss. You had a different one usually all the time. Um, And then in college, I felt like my answers, my questions were finally being answered, that they were finally being given the seriousness in which I was asking them and that there were places that I could find answers. And that was so exciting to me. And I knew I wanted to do ministry. I've always felt the calling to do ministry, except for the time where I thought I'd be a good spy, but I'm not coordinated (laughs) enough. (laughs) Um, A good spy as in like James Bond? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine me trying to, like, no. do a kickflip or something? I don't no, know. I can't imagine you pulling a gun either. It just doesn't <laughs> or work. Or keeping a good secret. No, <laughs> couldn't do it. That wasn't my path. Um, but part of my issue is I had never seen a female pastor. It didn't even occur to me that women could be pastors. I had seen women in ministry and children's ministry and missions and things like that, but I had never seen a female pastor. It didn't even occur to me that that could be a thing. 
And so my plan was, well, I'm going to become a CEO of a nonprofit who tells everybody about Jesus's love. That was your that was your plan in high school or college? Uh, in the beginning of college and seminary. You're going to be a CEO of some organization, some nonprofit, some for-profit, who knows, and the whole purpose was for you to tell people about Jesus and how much Jesus loves them. Yes, that huh? was my plan. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, so you go to freshman year of high school, if college, and you start taking progressive classes, uh, which I'm really impressed. Who knew Baylor was a progressive? I always thought, Waco, I hear Waco, Texas. I think of the wacko in Waco. Who, <laughs> yeah. Uh, with David, David Koresh. Yeah, that's yeah. what I think of when I think of Waco, Texas, unfortunately. I think of rabid conservatism, but no, Baylor is a place of progressive theology. Who the heck knew that? And, you know, some kids just say, oh, you know, you got to be wary of what your professors are saying. Uh And it wasn't progressive in the sense of like going to, you know, the seminary you went to or something like that. So it's not progressive, but it's certainly not as conservative as you would think it would be. Because, you know, it's interesting just hearing this is my uh, little Christian college, Whitworth College in Spokane. Um, It's pretty conservative. After hearing you talk about, yeah, not progressive in any way, shape, or form. Okay, Uh, yeah. Pretty pretty closed-minded. All right. So when you got to, when you were before college, did you believe in the virgin birth? Yes. Did you believe in the physical resurrection? Yes. Did you believe in the physical miracles? Yes. Did you believe in casting out demons? No. So this is where Sarah and my stories are pretty different. Sarah grew up very charismatic. Uh I did not. We were very kind of just straight-laced Baptists. That was our flavor. We were, you know, it was a big controversy when the youth group started clapping during worship. (laughs) I was part of that. I started clapping, and it, it, it caused a little feathers to be ruffled, but they just said, oh, well, you're in the contemporary service so well. Um, <laughs> so did you, uh, um, God, what was I going to say? Growing up Baptist, clapping in church. Yeah, or, you were asking me. Oh, it. speaking in tongues. That was it. Did you speak in tongues? No, no, What did no, you no. think of people speaking in tongues? That there was something different about them. You know, we believed that it happened in the Bible, but that that was, oh, there's a theological term for it, but it, we believed that was closed. So is it dispensationalism? Is that the, is that the Maybe. term? Maybe. I don't Where know. I'd have to Google earlier that. Earlier dispensation in the Bible. I don't want to get into dispensation. Something like That's that. Crazy I don't know. Theology. All right. So the cracks start happening in your freshman year in college. Did you, when did you start doubting the virgin birth? You know, I think... It was really in seminary when I learned that you did not have to believe in the Bible literally because I was very concerned like we were I was taught more or less the version of the Bible just being handed down from God. If I I think that was kind of what the Sunday school version of biblicism was for me. And so in seminary when I learned about how the Bible was really formed, and that had started my freshman year in college, but I kind of was like, that's confusing, and set it aside. 
So in seminary, when I started learning about that and learning how these stories came to be, how these miracles were viewed in the first century, it put to question everything for me. It, so was it like a, a straw or a building block? Yes. Like, like I'm pulling a building block like you can watch me on TV. Like a, what is that game? That Jenga. We, Jenga. So there's a yeah. big theological Jenga. And that was the one. Block and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Because I was like, how can you believe in this literally when there are contradictions in the text itself? When it's been translated so many times and different translations have different words for this. I also had many friends who were gay or lesbian who I was like, wait, my current construction doesn't fit of who I know they are to be. My current beliefs don't fit that. And they are wonderful human beings who deserve love. They are not choosing that life because I saw them get bullied. I, I heard their stories. I knew they weren't choosing to live that kind of life, that they were who they were. They Just were like out of the I'm, closet. Were yeah. they Christian? Um, some of them were, yeah. Some of them I tried really hard to convert in high school. To Christianity? Yeah. Away from, kind of believe the gay away or something like that? I didn't believe that, but I wanted them to be saved. I didn't want them to go to hell. I didn't want anybody I knew to go to hell. Did you do a lot of that in high school? A lot of oh, saving? I tried. I tried. <laughs> I mean, just to your friends, did you go out like to the mall and hand out tracts? And that no, that was a little before my time. Really what our... Thing was was let me invite you to youth group let me invite you to this um retreat weekend that we called disciple now weekends um let me invite you to these places where there will be an opportunity for an altar call and you will be moved and be saved huh. and so you know i've talked to some friends about it now and said like man like i must have been really annoying i'm sorry <laughs> and they said you know while it, it may have been a little misplaced, we knew you did it because you cared about us. Uh-huh. And that's was really compassionate of my friends to say. <laughs> <laughs> so the Jenga comes down in college. Yeah. You start questioning everything. Did you question the physical resurrection? Yeah, I think everything came into question. I think I was very much ready and willing to take apart each piece of my faith and ask, what do I believe? And to some of it, I still don't have answers. You know, there's a, um, a philosopher, Paul Ricoeur, uh, who talks about the, f- the first naivete, and the image is like you go into a, a, a chapel, and it's like you take everything down that's in the chapel, and you ask, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. You ask, take the cross down. What is this? What does it mean? You take an image of Jesus down. What is this? What does it mean? You take, you know, a stained glass down that shows, you know, a miracle. What does this mean? How, how it's, you just start questioning literally anything and everything that has to do with your initial set of beliefs that you grew up with. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what I did. And I was, it was scary, but it also made me super excited. And I was so excited to learn what the answers could be. So you were you didn't have any anxiety around it. Oh no, I had anxiety. I had anxiety. There's always there was always this fear of oh my gosh, am I going to go to hell? Um, I'll say more about that. 
yeah, I mean, we really believed that if you were not a Christian, if you didn't believe rightly, you would go to hell. There were always debates. Is it once saved, always saved? Or do you have to go back and confess your beliefs over and over again, become saved over and over again? That was like a huge part of my upbringing, asking that question, a huge part of, um, you know, we'd have debates about it in seminary, like, is this once saved, always saved? Or is it you have to go back again and again? Um, My parents, you know, one thing that was kind of popular to do was to go to camp, get saved again, and then get rebaptized. My parents wouldn't let me get rebaptized. They were like, Samantha, you're fine. You're good. <laughs> you're okay. <laughs> did you ever, when did you get to the point where you started saying, I can't call myself an evangelical anymore? Oh, I think it was during the pandemic. Oh, recent. I, fairly. I, I think I was holding on to that piece because it was such a huge part of who I grew up as, of who I was. I really wanted to change evangelicalism from the inside. So, okay, so, okay, I didn't know this about you. So let me back up a little bit. Yeah. All right. So the Jenga falls apart You're in college or seminary or both? Both. It, yeah, well, it had been falling apart since high school. So, okay, so you yeah. started questioning all yeah. anxiety. What did your friends start saying to you when you were doing all this questioning and going to college and the Jenga crumbles? You started asking. What did, what did your friends do? You know, some of them were in the same place as me. Probably a lot of them were in the same place that I was of like, well, what does this mean? But some of them made the choice to stay in it to stop asking questions and that was the blinders on keep the blinders on. yeah that was really hard for me to watch them do that um there were always people who you know wanted to pray for me and whatever sure and they said and they said samantha we're praying for you yeah were they saying don't ask any questions um i never got specifically told don't ask questions but it was always implied of like, well, you know, you got to have faith. You got to trust. You got to believe. It was more framed in that way. So it wasn't quite as explicit as, you know, stop asking questions. But it was, you have to have faith. You have to have the faith of a mustard seed to be able to grow as a Christian. You, can, you can't rely on your inner voice, your inner self. You have to just believe and what is being taught to you and told to you. But my seminary professors were like, no, I want to hear your own ideas in your paper. Mm -hmm. And so I had these conflicting things, things that were being said in the church, things that were being said in popular Christianity or popular evangelicalism, and then also what I was learning and studying in seminary. And so all of these things were clashing and clashing and clashing. And I I wanted to change baptist life from the inside i wanted to tell people and i did tell people all the time about how gay folks are not choosing that that it is who they are they don't choose that who would choose that um especially in the cultural context i was in um i was telling people like you can believe in science and in god like it's not a divergent view but some people didn't agree with that 
And did you like, grow up? Did you grow up with creation? Um, what do they call it? Creationism. Cre- creationism. Um, I learned about it in Sunday school, but my schools also taught evolution. Oh, your elementary school? Or yeah, I went. I went to public, public school. school. Yeah, right. yeah. Did that create any uh, dissonance for? Oh you? yeah, I was trying real hard to figure out where those dinosaurs fit into creationism. <laughs> I was trying really hard to figure out how that all worked and, you know, could the Big Bang still be true? And, you know, that was a huge part. I loved dinosaurs, so I was very concerned about what day they were on. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody had an answer for me. No, still nobody has an answer what day they would be. (laughs) So from an early age, you were fairly precocious just trying to figure out your place and whatnot. Yes, yes. So I want you to talk a little bit about – your mom and dad and your family. Yeah. Because, you know, I've gotten to know your mom and dad uh, a little bit over the years since you've been working at Columbine. And they're really supportive people, even though they're Southern Baptist. Are they Southern Baptist or Texas yeah. Baptist? Yeah, well, they go to a church that's both. Okay. Yeah. So they're, they would still embrace what is said called evangelicalism. Yeah, I think they would. Socially, theologically, yeah. they're kind of right there. But yet they were they were pretty supportive of your whole journey. What is talk about that? Yeah, you know my parents always tried to answer my questions to the best of their ability. I sometimes had really wild ones that they would try to address, like where did dinosaurs fit in, and they just would do their best um, in trying to answer those. And then, you know, they also never led me to believe that I couldn't be anything. They always let me know that I could be anything that I wanted to be. And my mom was very much in leadership positions. Um, She worked for schools and school districts, always was in leadership positions, always getting more and more education. And so she was a woman in leadership, as as were both my grandmothers. They were just women who are leaders. And, um, you know, so from the church perspective, that's where it clashed was like, I believe in women in leadership. Like I see it happening every day, but where is it in the church? You know, I had my children's minister who was female and she was incredible and, you know, taught us so wonderfully all the stories of the Bible, um, But yeah, then, you know, my parents were very encouraging, you know, you can go to whatever college you want to, you can major in whatever you want to, we're here to support you in your education. And so they really did. And when I was in seminary, I would learn these new ideas. And I was dating my husband at the time, and then we got engaged and married all while I was in seminary. And I would ask him the questions and we'd talk about it. And then I would call my dad and I would say, Dad, what do you think? And there was one conversation that I'll never forget. I was driving from school to my apartment, and I was on the phone with my dad, and I said, Dad, you know, I really believe that the LGBTQ community has full and equal rights in the kingdom of heaven. I truly believe that. And I said, I don't understand why the church doesn't believe that. I don't understand why that's not a part of it. And he said, you know, Samantha, I don't know either. I don't understand it all. I don't get it. But all I know is that God is love. Mm -hmm. That is all I know for sure, that God is love. 
And looking back, that's what my parents always taught me, that God is love, that you do everything out of love, that you, that that is the Christian ethic. And that, I believe, is how my parents are able to support me, is they know that I am following God's call, even though they may not agree with everything that I say. Sometimes I say things just to shock them, you know, because I'm a daughter and that's what I do. Um, and sometimes they try to say things just to shock me because they're my parents and that's what they do. Um, but they always support me. In fact, my mom was like, why didn't you tell me sooner you were preaching? I would have been there. Because she comes every, almost every single time that I so preach. So she's coming up this Sunday, you're preaching? She's not. She said I was too late. I got in trouble for that. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> so the, um, what role does a supportive family deal have to do with deconstruction, people going through deconstruction? Absolutely everything. I think, you know, there was a period when I told my parents that I felt the call to be a pastor, not just a teacher, not just a children's or youth minister and even that's a calling in its own right I'm not trying to diminish it at all but when I told them I feel called to be a pastor that preaches in front of males females whoever I was really scared about what they were going to say really nervous when I told Luke I was really nervous and scared and all I've been met with is well if that's what God is calling you to do you have to do it if that's what you're being told to do by God that's what you need to do and I think I would have been a lot more scared. I would have been a lot more nervous. I would have, growing up, not felt safe to ask questions. And I would probably not have started deconstructing until later in life because that would have been shut down. And because of this, I feel like as a 28-year-old to be able to say right now, I'm holding my beliefs with an open hand, not a closed fist with an open hand, and that I'm comfortable with those things changing is a huge gift. That there are not a lot of people my age that are able to do that, and I believe that that is directly because of the people who loved and supported me through this, including my family. So I think this is one of the key things that is part of your story, that anybody who's listening, and they have someone who's going through deconstruction, that they need to pay attention to how important it is to have supportive family and friends. Because, like, look at Sarah Rex, who did not have supportive yeah. family and friends. And it was tremendously anxiety-producing, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of frustration that she postponed her deconstruction for years and years and years worth. You, you had a supportive family. Mm -hmm. It was right there around you. It, it allowed you to question unfold, have the Jenga come down without everybody freaking out, yeah. which lowered your uh, anxiety around it. There was still anxiety. Oh, but, definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so you stopped believing in the virgin birth. You stopped believing in the physical resurrection. You stopped believing in literal miracles. You know, I think those are all things that I hold loosely. You still wrestle about with Yeah, them. and I, you know, maybe... In a year from now, I'll have answers and be able to definitively say what I believe about all of that. I don't, I think right now I'm like, I'm not sure that it, sure, why not? It could have happened, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in the process of thinking through, what does all this mean? And being okay with coming to the answer of maybe I don't believe in that, or maybe I do. And 
or saying maybe next year I do believe in and the year after that I'm questioning it again. What do you do with suffering? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you were raised in a uh, privileged white family. I was raised in a privileged white family. I went to a privileged uh, college, white college. Uh, we, there was a kind of a racial mix and a gender mix in seminary, but we're part of white suburbs here at Columbine. I mean, privilege, not, I mean, people suffer, but not like third world suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, not like, I mean, we're talking profound suffering. What do you do with that? What, is, what does your theology do with profound suffering? This was probably the first thing I had to wrestle with. When I was in the fourth grade, my uncle was murdered in Dallas, Texas. Fourth grade? Fourth grade. Mm -hmm. um, right before I started fourth grade in that summer. And that was extremely confusing. To this day, we still don't know who did it. Um, mm -hmm. It's a cold case or whatever it is. And I had to think a lot about what do I believe about suffering? What do I believe about the afterlife? What do I believe about justice? And I don't think we suffer for a higher purpose all the time. Sometimes suffering does lead to personal growth and wonderful things like that. But sometimes suffering is just a part of life. But I do not believe that God is orchestrating that to test us. So sometimes suffering just sucks. It just sucks. You yeah. got to go. You, I mean, here it is. It's your life. Someone gets murdered, you're in a car wreck, you get cancer. If you're in the third world, poverty is just a part of your life. You're living under a dictator, whether you're in, you know, El Salvador or in Russia. And yeah. sometimes it just sucks. Your place on the planet, your time on the planet puts you out in a sucky place. And yeah. the rest of us are privileged. And that's why I think, you know, those of us from privilege have got to go out of our way to work for justice. For that's exactly what world. I believe too. Yeah. Whether it's gender, whether it's gender justice, racial justice, immigration justice, um, third world developing country justice, putting down dictators, people who have their screws on top of people, people who are in privilege, in the United States have got to work for justice. I mean, it's just is yeah. a bottom line of who we are. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's part of what Christian love is, is a mission of justice, of helping people and giving resources to people who need them and that um, asking those people what do they need and being there. And, you know, I believe that God is a presence through it all and um, that we are not suffering alone. I don't believe that there's, that sometimes it feels like we're alone. A lot of times when you're suffering, it feels like you're alone, but that you're not. That there are people who love you, that there is a God who loves you and who will be there with you walking alongside you. Cool. What's deconstruction? This kind of switch gears. I'm switching yeah. gears. What is, because there's a lot of people who listen to this who have no idea what this term means. So what you just talked about is going through a process of deconstruction, but from your own words, what is deconstruction? Yeah, deconstruction is pulling apart your faith and examining it and asking questions. It's seeing that, wait a minute, what is happening in faith is not what I believe should happen. It's 
oh, what they're saying to be true, I don't know that it's true, and asking those questions. And sometimes it means leaving the church. Sometimes it means finding a different church. But I think we all go to this to some extent. But as we grow older and learn more about the world around us, but that specifically from evangelicalism, it is seeing that not everything is as it appears and that we have to examine it, ask questions, challenge leadership, and follow where the truth takes us. So, so there can be some people who are listening to this podcast who are in the midst of deconstruction. Yeah. What do you say to them? To keep going, keep asking questions, find people who will support you, who will listen to your questions and let you know, like, nobody has an answer to that. What do you, what do you say to the people who deconstruct who are just pissed off? There's a lot of, there's a lot of really angry people. They feel like they've been duped. Uh, by Christianity all their whole lives, and uh, they suddenly feel like their eyes have been ripped open. It's like, I've been duped. And so they're angry and resentful. What do you say to them? Be angry. Be resentful. Feel what you feel. And when you're ready to ask questions, find a community. But if you're not ready, find people who will support you and who will help you find the joy and meaning in life. Yeah. Because sometimes what you lose in deconstruction is a sense of meaningfulness in life. Because what you thought was the meaning of life, you know, saving souls or being a part of this community gets pulled out from underneath you. So finding a community that will support you in finding the meaning of life, whether that's a good group of friends, you know, I hope that it would be your family or a congregation who supports you through that. But be angry. Leave if you need to leave. Um, come back when you're ready to come back or don't. You know, follow what you believe is true and what's right for yourself. All right. What are the biggest questions that you're asking right now besides what's for Ooh. lunch? Yeah, I am hungry. Um, I would say one of the questions I'm asking is how does the church become more racially just? How do we combat our complicity and racism? Um, that's a big question. Another question is, as a youth and children's minister, how do I set these kids and teenagers up for success through their deconstruction? Because they're going to walk away and they're going to say, hmm, I don't know if I believe that. How do I teach them that that's okay, that that's right, that that's normal? And then I'm also just asking, you know, what do I believe about these things? And how urgent is it that I decide? For a lot of things, I think it's details that I can continually ask questions about over time. For some things like the church's complicity and racism, I feel like they're very important and very much needed. We need to find answers soon. Um, so yeah. Good. Well, we're at our time. Anything else you want to say kind of closing down? Oh, uh, I don't know. I think that whatever journey you're on, it's a good one. You know, you can find the joy in it and that you don't have to have it all solved in one day, that it's okay. I have to tell myself this all the time. You don't have to have all the answers today. You'll be okay. <laughs> You'll figure it out. There's people who will help you figure it out. So, good. yeah. All right, well, Sam Math, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Again, 
This is Steve Poos Benson, the Cowboy Jesus Pot Podcast. You can also catch my blog, also Cowboy Jesus. I usually publish that on Fridays. You can find it on Facebook. You can find it on Columbine United Church's webpage. A lot of different ways we can hook up with one another. Let's stay in dialogue. I publish a Wednesday shout-out, kind of a midweek spiritual boost for people. Again, you can find that on uh, my website. Or, I mean, on my Facebook page, Rev Steve Poos Benson. All right. Thank you very much. I hope that you have a great week and take care from Cowboy Jesus. We'll see you. Bye.